All right, guys, if you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Revelation chapter 2, please. We are mostly there. Uh, this morning is going to be our second week of looking at the seven churches that Jesus speaks to in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. We recently uh, finished up our study of the book of Acts, which showcased for us the expansion of the church after the Gospels. After Jesus died and resurrected and He ascends to heaven, we get to see in the book of Acts the Holy Spirit taking uh, the witnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to J Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and also to the ends of the earth. And through that study, we got to see how the Holy Spirit broke ground in new places, in new cities, in new countries. And we got to see how the gospel rooted itself among the different people groups and different cultures, all in the midst of persecution and hardship. Persecution and hardship was what pushed the, the church out into these areas as the, the climate in Jerusalem became cold and they began to turn on the Christians in that area. It caused this ripple effect. So the persecution came in and it ripples out into these other areas. And we got to see through the book of Acts how far that would go. And in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, we get to see what 30 years has done to some of those churches that were planted during Paul's second missionary journey. I mentioned last week that the church in Ephesus was probably the mother church of all the other six churches that Jesus addresses in the book of Revelation. And in one of these letters, uh, in each one of these letters, we're going to see uh, an authoritative opening by Jesus. He's going to speak about who he is. And he's going to establish in that why each of the churches should listen to his assessment on their life as a church. And then after that, we see his assessment. You've got two of the churches that have nothing but encouragement as they live up to Christ's expectations as a church. And then we also see that five of those churches, there's going to be a mixture of both encouragement and rebuke. And for some, there's just rebuke. Some get no encouragement whatsoever. They just get rebuke. And last week, we looked at Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus, which was one of the churches that receives both encouragement and rebuke. Ephesus had a church that was strong in their doctrine. It was strong in their works. But in the process of becoming a strong doctrinal church, Jesus says, you have forgotten your first love. They forgot what it meant to love God and to love their neighbor as they love themselves. And so from Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus, we need to understand that being a solid biblical church is more than just understanding the doctrines that we find in Scripture. Right? You can study the Bible over the course of a lifetime. You can know it from cover to cover. You may have the ability to expound the depths of your knowledge on ecclesiology or soteriology or eschatology, 
Uh, but if you don't know God, if you don't love God, then your knowledge of all those ologies is worthless. You have wasted your time studying the Word of God if by studying it you grow cold to the person of God. If by studying the Scriptures you become cold to the family of God, to the church of God, then you have wasted your time. Right? The Scriptures are not meant to just give us a strong educational background in historic literature. They're meant to transform us into the likeness of Christ. That's the reason why we study it. That's the reason why we preach it and proclaim it, is because we want to become more like Jesus. And the church in Ephesus, they had lost sight of what was important regarding the Scriptures. And because of that, Christ called them out. He said, remember how far you've fallen. Remember who you once were. right? And then repent and return to the works that you used to do. If they refused to repent and they refused to return to their first love, Jesus said that He would remove their lampstand. And what that means is the lampstands were, were the churches. And so He's saying in, in removing that lampstand that they would lose their authority and they would lose their effectiveness as a church. And this week, we're going to look at the second church in the book of Revelation in chapter 2, which uh, is one, Smyrna, which is one of the two churches that did not receive a rebuke. Right, Smyrna would have been about 30 miles north of Ephesus, and at the time of John's writing in the book of Revelation, Smyrna was experiencing a great deal of persecution from the Jews. Right? And this letter that Jesus sends to John to send to this persecuted church, we're going to see Jesus encourage them to stay strong in their faith because if they are able to endure to the end, they have this promise of a crown of life and no reason to fear the coming judgment. So when we read this, you're going to notice this is very short. It's four verses. Don't let that get your hopes up. We're not getting out of here early. Okay? Um, but we are going to look at, in these four verses, how we can apply uh, this letter to our church today. So before we get in, I want to pray uh, one more time before we open the Word. So let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful for Your Word. I'm grateful that it speaks to the realities of this life, that it speaks to the condition of our heart, uh, that it speaks to the condition of our churches. And Lord, I pray that as we open your word today, that you would be um, impressing upon us the importance of endurance and perseverance, that we would be people who can handle the hardships this, this life uh, brings to us and that we can shine brightly in the darkness for your glory, just the same way that the church in Samaria did. We love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. So, Beginning in verse 8 this morning, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, it says, Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for ten days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. So when we look at these verses, 
the first thing that we should notice is that Jesus told the church in Smyrna some things about himself regarding why they should listen to his assessment of their church. This is the authoritative opening that Jesus is going to give to each one of his churches. And this is his way of saying, this is who I am, and this is the reason why you should listen to what I have to say. To the church in Ephesus, he said he was the holder of the stars, which were the angels that are looking over these churches. And he was also the one who walked among the lampstands, which were the churches themselves. So he's saying, I'm holding the authority in these churches. I'm among you as you go about your life. And here today, to the church in Smyrna, Jesus says three things about his authority over them. Right? So why should they listen to Jesus? He tells us in verses 8 and 9. He says, number one, I am the first and the last. Number two, he says, I am the one who was dead and came to life. And, I, and number three, I am the one who knows. And I'm going to break each one of these down. So first off, he says, first and the last. And you see throughout the book of Revelation, he's often referred to as the Alpha and the Omega. Right? The beginning and the end. And in talking about himself in this way, Jesus is speaking to the eternality of God. Right? He's saying that there was nothing in existence before me. He's saying that there will not be anything in existence that will outlast me. And so Jesus, being God, is the one with all the power. He's the one with all the knowledge. He's the one from which everything exists. He sets the standard. So everything that we have from the law comes from His nature and character. And so Jesus is the standard. And so when the Alpha and the Omega speaks, it's a good idea for people to listen. We need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. The second thing that Jesus tells them is that He is the one who was dead and came to life. And in this, Jesus is pointing to His resurrection, which is the foundation of the Christian faith. Right? The life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus is the reason that we can have a, stored relation, a restored relationship with God the Father. So Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live so that He would take our punishment and be an atoning sacrifice on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to face the wrath of God ourselves. Right? So He took our sin, and when we come to faith in Him, He gives us His righteousness. And then even after his death, three days later, he rose again from the death, forever from death, forever conquering sin and death. And he passes that blessing on to us. We are no longer in Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin. In Christ, we have nothing to fear from death. So if someone is going to have authority over your life and you're looking for an impressive resume, right? the eternal God of the universe is a great place to start. And then, when you add to that being the promised Messiah who came to take away the sins of the world, that's a strong follow-up for your authority. So when He speaks, we need to listen. And lastly, Jesus claims to be the one who knows. He says, I know your affliction and your poverty. He says, I know the slander of those who are coming against you. And so as God, Jesus has many characteristics that set Him completely apart from us. Right? We are created in the image of God, and that means that we are somewhat made in His likeness, but there are so many things about Him that we can't touch 
because he doesn't transfer those things to us, two of those characteristics are being omniscient and omnipresent. Being omniscient means that Jesus knows everything. Like there's nothing that you can think that he does not know that you have thought. He knows all of your reality. And secondly, to be omnipresent means that Jesus is everywhere. So there's no place that you can hide from God. He sees it all. And the church in Smyrna is suffering from the persecution of the Jews in their city. And Jesus knows about every bit of it. He knows everything that they're going through. And beyond what he knows and sees as God, he also knows experientially as a man. He knows what they're going through. Jesus suffered the exact same thing that the church in Smyrna is suffering through. Affliction, yep. He knows all about affliction. Isaiah 53 says that the coming Messiah would be despised and rejected by men. It says that a man, he would be a man of suffering that knew what sickness was. He was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, Jesus was silent before his abusers. He knows what it's like to experience pain. He knows what it's like to experience hardship. Every bad thing that you and I have ever had to experience, Jesus knows. Hunger, thirst, exhaustion, physical pain, sorrow, abandonment, persecution, and eventually his own death. Jesus experienced it all. So he knows all too well what it's like to experience affliction. And what about poverty? Jesus is familiar with that as well. In Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus is approached by a potential disciple, Jesus tells the man, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus was homeless. And he relied solely on the benevolence of the people around him and the provision of God the Father. And so in Smyrna, the Jews would make it difficult for Christians to be able to provide for themselves and for their families. And Jesus says, I can relate to that. I know what it's like not to know where I'm going to lay my head today. I know what it's like not to know where my meal is coming from. So he knows experientially what they're going through. And if you want to add slander to that, Jesus knows all about that too. Because everything that the Jews accused Jesus of eventually led to his death was false. Right? The Jews knew it was false. Pontius Pilate knew it was false. King Herod knew it was false. But no one cared. As long as it didn't mess up their political ambitions, no one cared that everything that was brought up against Jesus was wrong. And none of it was worthy of death. And so Jesus knows what the church in Smyrna is going through. And so because of this, it's a good idea for them to listen to what he has to say. And because of that, it's also a good idea for us to listen to what he has to say. And unfortunately for them, his words did not bring with them the promise of an easier life. Right? Isn't that often what we go to God with? A, a desire to have this hardship taken away and we long to hear him say sure no problem i love you we're going to make this as easy for you as possible but unfortunately that doesn't always happen and they didn't bring with the words of jesus didn't bring any promise of an immediate rescue 
for the church in Smyrna. Instead, Jesus speaks of more hardship. He says that He knows their affliction, He knows of their poverty, He knows of their slander, and He knows that they're about to suffer even more sorrow. The believers in Smyrna are about to be thrown into prison by the Jews because of their faith. Jesus informs them that Satan is at work in their city. And because of that work, there's more affliction that's coming their way. Satan is working through the Jews to antagonize the Romans, uh, to keep the people of Christ under their thumb and to have them thrown into prison. And so this is a good reminder to remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in heaven. And so we have a very real enemy in Satan who is raging against anything that God loves. And he will use whatever means that he has available to him in order to oppress the people of God. Why? Why does he do that? Well, number one, he enjoys it because he's evil. He enjoys tormenting the people of God. And number two, he's trying to keep people from hearing the gospel. If he can make believers in Christ afraid to actually live for Christ, they might not follow the Great Commission. Right? If he can essentially take away any effectiveness that we have for the kingdom of God, then he considers himself in victory, even though he is ultimately and already currently defeated. And on top of that, if Satan can convince the brothers and sisters in Smyrna to fear him more than they fear Christ, maybe he can stop the kingdom advancement in, in that city. If Satan can show non-believers the struggle that awaits those who profess faith in Christ, maybe they won't be quite as keen to put their faith in Christ. Right? If that's what I have to go through to believe in that, I don't want to do that. I don't want to experience that hardship. I don't want to lay down my life for the pursuit of God. I would rather have my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in my house. But here we, here we have this problem that Satan has not quite come to terms with yet is that the plan often blows up in Satan's face because when the world sees a believer in Christ struggling because of their faith and they never waver, right? that's not to say that they don't break down, but they never waver in their faith, it becomes interesting to those who do not believe. Right? Why would you go through that for Jesus? Why would you... Why would you sacrifice so much for the cause of Christ? And this opens the door for a gospel conversation. Right? When we're willing to suffer for our faith, it makes our faith more appealing, not less appealing, because it proves that we actually believe what we say we believe. Right? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ worth your life? Yes. Prove it then I will pour my life out so that you can see that I absolutely believe that the gospel is worth everything that I have. Jesus knows the struggle that they are going to face and he offers them these words of advice. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The suffering is coming. Is coming. It's imminent. Like You're going to experience pain. Like You've got three 
places that you are, three seasons of your life. You're either going into a storm, you're in a storm, or you're coming out of a storm. Let's call it four, getting ready to go back into another storm. That's just the nature of life on this planet. And Jesus doesn't offer any reasons not to be afraid. He just says, don't be afraid. So we have to look elsewhere to see why these believers shouldn't be afraid. And luckily for them and for us, the Scriptures are full of reasons why believers should not be afraid at the hardships and trials that are coming for them. For example, Joshua 1.9 says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For your Lord, your God, will be with you wherever you go. Remember, God is all present. He is with you in the midst of all your suffering. So don't be afraid. Psalm 23.4 Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So are you willing to go to prison for your faith? Because if you do, God will be there with you. You do not need to be afraid because God is always with you. My favorite chapter in the whole Bible, Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39 says, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hmm, that's good. Romans chapter 8, you should look into it. So this affliction that they are facing, it cannot and it will not be able to separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And the same goes for us. No matter what you're experiencing, nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? Like this is amazing. And it's a useful idea to fight away the notion that you're going through a difficult time because God doesn't care about you. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been going through hardship and believed for even just a moment? Maybe I've messed up. I've gone too far. Maybe this is God's punishment for me. Well, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not your, it's, he's not angry at you. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus. So it can't be that you have outsinned his grace. So if you are struggling, it has to be for another reason other than God not loving you. And you might not ever know what that reason is. You might be one domino in the midst of a thousand dominoes and the end goal just involved you and it doesn't land on you. But it cannot possibly be because God doesn't love you. That is not the reason why you are suffering. 
But knowing that God loves you in the midst of your suffering should help you not be afraid of the suffering. Isaiah 41.10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do not be afraid, because even when you are weak, God is strong. He will hold you up. All right? You don't have to worry about your strength. Because the God that we get to lean into in the moments of our trial and tribulation is infinitely strong. He can have all the strength that we constantly fail to have. Do not be afraid because God is strong. He will hold you up. And one last one, Isaiah 35, 4, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. So do not be afraid because God will rescue you and he will avenge you. Right? That promise might not be fulfilled in this life. Right? That rescue might look different than what we're praying for. Right? But it is a promise nonetheless. You can guarantee that someday, no matter what your affliction is, God will rescue you from it. He might rescue you physically by removing you from whatever the affliction is. Maybe the illness goes away. Maybe the, the persecution goes away. Or He might rescue you permanently by taking you home to heaven in death. But no matter what, we will be rescued. Guaranteed. We have the promise of rescue. And also on top of that, God is not going to let anything that we experience here go unaccounted for. God's wrath is coming for all who have rebelled against Him and for all who have attacked His people. God's not turning a blind eye in the face of our persecution. It might look like evil is winning in this life, but this life isn't all that there is. Right? There's more to it than what we are simply experiencing here. And if we are faithful to the point of death, it says Jesus promises rewards for those who are faithful. This is a theme that runs throughout Scriptures. Right in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus wraps up the Beatitudes by saying, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward in heaven is great. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Revelation 22.12 and 13 Look, I am coming and soon my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Right, so again, he's asserting his authority as the first and the last, the sovereign God of all creation. And he says, I will bring with me my reward to give each person according to their work. And what, are those, what are those rewards? Well, it says there, he mentions two. He says, first is the crown of life. Right, Faithfulness in Jesus results in an eternity of life in him and with him. Right? He says, if you will endure to the end, you will receive the crown of life. And if you remember back to the parable of the sower, 
Right? You've got four different types of seed. Two of those different types in the middle are things of the world choked them out. One was things like wealth and prosperity. And the other were things like affliction and persecution. And so there was a sprout of life that showed up originally and then the things of the world choked them out. So they did not endure to the end. But the final seed landed in fruitful in good soil and it produced a lifetime of fruitfulness. And so if you do not make it to the end, it's because you weren't caught up in Christ. Right? Because it says in Romans 8 that nothing can remove you from the hand of God. Nothing can remove you from His love. And so Jesus says, if you will endure this temptation, if you will endure this hardship, if you will realize that nothing is better than the kingdom of God, no matter what you experience, you will receive the crown of life. Meaning that you will be with Him forever in eternity in heaven. That's the crown of life. He also says there, the second one, is that there is no harm by the second death. Alright, so what is he talking about in the second death? The second death is a spiritual death. Right, the first death is this body that will inevitably die unless Christ comes back before that happens. The second death is a spiritual death. That death happens after the judgment. If we stand before God on our own merit and say, I'm the best I've got to offer. And God looks at that and He says, guilty, condemned, second death. That second death involves hell. It involves condemnation. It involves an eternity of God's wrath. But for those of us who stand before the judgment in the righteousness of Christ if we have put our faith in His atoning sacrifice and believe that God raised Him from the dead, then when we stand before God, we have no reason to fear the second death because there is no second death. God looks at us and He sees righteous, not guilty on the basis of Jesus. And so those that endure have no harm. Those who conquer will never be harmed by the second death. This is the promise to the church in Smyrna, and it is also the promise that we have here today. So what do we do with this as Oak Grove Baptist Church? We, we live in a time that we don't experience anything like this. Right? The, the worst that happens to us at this time is that people call us names and say mean things about us online. Like That is persecution. Right? We might lose a job because of some belief that we have, maybe. But people aren't throwing us in prison. People are not beating us to death in the streets. People are not kicking down this door and dragging us out and shooting us on the front lawn. Now, we don't understand in this country what persecution really is. Like I get a, I get a book monthly called Vo Voice of the Martyrs. And it talks about the persecution that happens all over the world. And I read a story about a, a little 13-year-old girl who, she was in Egypt. She put her faith in Christ in a, from a Muslim family. And her dad beat her constantly in an attempt to get her to change her mind. She was locked in a room and she would, her father would come in, give her a chance to, 
turn back to Islam and she would refuse. And so he would beat her until she got, got tired. And then when he, or when he got tired, and when he got tired, he would go get other members of the family to come in and beat her in his stead. And this happened over and over and over again until one day her little sister finally helped her escape. And she ran away to Cairo. And there, some family members found her and drug her back. She was raped. She was beaten almost to death constantly. And yet she refused to renounce her faith. That's persecution. That is the exact type of person that Jesus is talking to about here in the church of Smyrna. But I do believe that persecution is coming our way. I do believe that over time we will experience something like this. I don't know when. I was speaking to uh, an elder at one of the churches that I went to uh, 10, 12 years ago. And he said, look, he said, I believe that I'm going to die sleeping in my bed. He said, I believe that you might someday die in a prison. And I believe that one day your children might die at the hands of persecutors. This is the reality that much of the world faces. This is a reality that I believe that we are going down that path, but we're not there yet. But what do we do when hardship does hit? We remember that Jesus knows. He knows what we're going through. He knows the hardship of this life, what it means to be human. He knows. And He is sovereign over it all. None of it escapes His notice. None of it escapes His ability to do something about it. And He will strengthen us in the midst of all of this hardship. So what will you do if you find yourself in a situation like this? Will you cower? Will you be afraid? Or will you endure? Will you remember the promises of God that will help you weather any storm? Something to think about as we go from this place today. Let's pray. Father, it's my desire that you would help us prepare for the storm. That we would be mindful of the fact that there are people all across this world who do not have the opportunity to gather the way that we have gathered here this morning. They don't have the ability to gather in comfort in an air-conditioned building with comfortable seats. They don't have the ability to walk in here without fear and, and realize that no one is kicking that door open and dragging any of us out this morning. So Lord, help us to be grateful for what you have given us but also to be mindful of the struggle of our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. Lord, help us to be prayerful for them as they face trial and tribulation, as they are making decisions every single day, life and death decisions on who they will follow. Will they renounce you? Will they have the strength to endure? Lord, help us to realize that you are with us in all things, that there is no storm that we will ever face where you have left us alone. I ask all of this in your son's precious name. Amen.